This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Histories of an Enduring Epidemic, published in 2018 by Cambridge University Press. Lucas, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Hi, thanks for having me. So we'd like to get things started by talking a little bit about the genesis of the book project and also how that relates to an author's uh, own trajectory. So what led you to the project to hand? What's your academic background? Um, and how did the process of turning whatever this book was before into its final form, how did that take shape? Well, it, it's, it's, it's quite, a, quite a long history. I... Um... So I did my, do my undergraduates in in, uh, in Germany, in Berlin, and I studied history and gender studies on a kind of parallel track in a very outdated German um, form of studying, which was called the Magister, um, in which I very much was encouraged to choose my own courses across all universities and everything that was available in Berlin, which was quite amazing. And it was there when I... Um, got increasingly involved, especially through gender studies, in the history of sexuality, in the history of sexuality in, in, in Europe, but also more broadly conceived. And I think it was a course on the politics of immunity or something like that, where I where I started to read uh, AIDS literature. And it was the classics was assigned by this teacher. And she she had kind of like put all these these this uh, this fantastic books and articles and pamphlets and things out on the on the syllabus and was basically a bit asking kind of like what we want to do with that or what we can think about that and I was reading through that I got incredibly fascinated by reading Treichler reading lots of Douglas Crimp at the time and was wondering somehow about the situation that in the beginning of the of the 2000s there was not much left of that i felt it mostly felt like like some kind of a discourse that that seemed to have been interrupted and seemed to have also kind of disappeared with the urgency of the epidemic 
and I got I began to become really interested in that kind of broader question: what happens if an epidemic disappears, or what happens if an epidemic transforms into something that is not what it used to be when it loses its sense of emergency and when it loses its sense of crisis. And that really then was folded onto the question of that this is not a this is not your standard epidemic as you find it. I mean, none of the epidemics are standards, of course, but this is not an epidemic that has the kind of proportions that we associate with the plague or with syphilis or with with uh, the smallpox. Not only in terms of that these are mostly very historical examples, but also in the terms in which AIDS and HIV managed to disrupt the epistemology of Western thought in the 1980s was something that added on to this question of how did this transform and how did this normalize and what can we learn from this normalization was, I think, the, the driving question that that uh, uh, geared things in the direction that it, to, 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 to do more on this. And then I, I did a paper for, for, for my, my master's thesis on, on the virus, on HIV representations, and from there onwards developed a PhD project that would then look at the larger picture, really, and ask how the history of AIDS and the history of HIV can be reinterrogated through its medical visual representations. So in 2009, I, I set up my PhD project around the question of how do medi or what can we learn from medical visual representations about the process of normalization of an epidemic crisis? And my broad question there was, how did medicine, how did what we conceive of as biomedicine integrate the medical, social, cultural, and epistemological crisis of AIDS into, into its systems of classification and systems of knowing and ways of knowing? And also, to fold the other way around, to what extent did the integration of AIDS into the visual medical canon, if you want to change the way medicine was conceived or the project of biomedicine was conceived? That was the broad question, as you do, kind of like a very, very broad and massive interruptive question that I wanted to engage in with in my PhD project. And I was very lucky to receive a, a fellowship or a scholarship in the, in the graduate school, which was called um, Gender as a Category of Knowledge in Berlin, which was a fantastic context to develop this thesis because I was surrounded by a lot of fantastic scholars who were working partially or who had worked on HIV and AIDS in, in the past, but also were incredibly interested and eager to engage with this topic also as a way of revisiting the kind of um, scholarship they were familiar with and to, to look into how and to what extent is there actually anything to say about where this ended up into or how the impulses and the, the aspects that came out of the 80s and 90s, how they were carried on within academia, how they, how we can trace those, those uh, impulses in gender studies, for example, but also in the field of medical history, where it also had massive uh, impact. First, I wanted to have you unpack for our listeners. So 
The material that you're working with is this AIDS atlas. That's sort of your, you know, the primary source material you're integrating into this broader um, discourse that you're unearthing at the same time. So could you tell listeners a little bit more about the atlas itself, its successive editions, what its structure is, and its circulation, who its audience was? Yeah, um, that was, so So I just mentioned, I, I set up my PhD proposal around about in 2009, and it was heavily influenced, I think, um, by by reading Objectivity by Dustin mm-hmm. and Gallison. Mm-hmm. And um, being being drawn to um, to to the way they use the atlas to retrace this history of concern about subjectivity or the drive for objectivity in various disciplines in the 19th century or 18th and 19th, and then also part of it in the 20th century. And that was kind of like in the background, and I was looking for a way to to tie my questions about visualizations, medicine, and AIDS down, and discovered more or less by chance the atlases as something that I found quite odd. They were, they were, um, I first encountered them in the dermatological clinic in the Charité. It's a hospital library in Berlin, which is part of the university library. So it was kind of like in the catalog. And then I went in there and found these books standing there among other dermatological textbooks. First of all, that was my first encounters with the Atlas as something that existed. And then looking into the Atlas, I was incredibly fascinated by the very fact that an Atlas on AIDS exists and already in 1986 when the first atlas was was published already that's that's just 5 years after after AIDS was officially registered and that didn't really compute in my mind with the kind of confusion and the kind of uncertainty and the associated with the uh, emergence of AIDS and with the 1980s and the medical discourse around that and so I looked into this atlas and so it's basically a series that was published in in 1980 six by a couple of clinicians together with clinical photographers, um, simply providing the basic understanding that existed at that time, like paired with a large catalog of everything that could be kind of like gathered together. And remarkably, I thought was that in the first atlas, more than in later atlases, there was also a lot of place for uncertainty and unusualness. It was not so much a tool like I took from the understanding of Destin and Gallison, atlases are supposed to be or what they're supposed to look like as this kind of solidified, consensual, established knowledge of a field and a discipline. Here, it was much more like this is what we know at the moment. This is what we can see all. Yeah? This is what is important to know when you diagnose this. This is important what you know when you approach this disease. These are the difficulties about this disease. These are the difficulties about the social and political framework around this disease. And here is what we could do at the moment. So it was also paired with like very basic advice on, on, on uh, disinfection and things like that. And from there, it then developed over the years into quite a different uh, um, project or a different series. It became much more professional. It became much more exhaustive. And it was reiterated year, not year after year, but every two or three years as a growing number, or as, a, as a growing volume of relatively agreed upon facts and aspects associated with AIDS. Until it then, so in the mid-90s, it was taken over by Springer and uh, branched out of the Atlas of Infectious Disease, which is a long-running series. 
and there in in the mid 90s it became then the the atlas of aids and later the international atlas of aids which is also by now the last edition which was published in 2008 um, and since then there hasn't been any update on that field but the two things that i found found fascinating was that on the one hand you have an epidemic of uncertainty that is throwing a lot of certainties into into crisis at the time and on the other hand there are a couple of clinicians who mount this like classic 19th century medium against this crisis and say not only do we want to create an ordered visual understanding of what this epidemic is but also by publishing an atlas about this condition giving more or less grounds for the for the development of a field of medical aid studies if you want mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. it's, it's so it's indicative also of a social process in which the knowledge formation around aids is represented as one that very rapidly then grew into its own subspecialty within within aids or its own interdisciplinary subspecialty Mm -hmm. Great. And so I have two nested questions. One about, you know, the sort of role of the atlas and what kind of story it allows you to tell about representation. And the other about the big sort of process that inspired you to work on the project. So there's a way in this book and you, you talk a lot about um, the phenomenon of AIDS becoming normalized, of AIDS becoming something that is, you know, as you just put it, something that can be assimilated into another series on you know, infectious diseases rather than some sort of big exception. So what's the relationship yeah. between the normalization of AIDS and biomedicalization? And how would you pin the role of the atlas in this sort of shift? Is there some kind of like causal relationship? Is it more that you can sort of read the changing social conditions through the atlas? How do you actually, how do you see this specifically in relationship to the broader process of perhaps uh, normalization through biomedicalization? So I, I would resist any causal relationship, and I, I think <laughs> there is there, there is none to 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 um, to draw out, and that's of course kind of like the the boring standard answer of every historian ever. <laughs> but instead of a causal relationship, I would very much claim that there is a relationship of uh, representation or a, a way in which the general history or general transformation of AIDS and HIV is mirrored in the Atlas, but also the Atlas allows very interesting insights, I think, in the way in which these transformations of AIDS and HIV have, uh, um, have been enacted and, and embodied in different ways. And it's a bit of a, um, I think, a bit of a not so in, or to say differently, it's a bit of a of an evergreen of sorts to to offer a periodization of AIDS history and in a way that's I think kind of like a classic historical a classic move of historians to claim a territory yeah but um, and I try to resist that because I think I'm 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 often get very frustrated with like strict periodizations of AIDS uh, there's classic ones like there's a time before high active antiretroviral therapy in the time after, you know, which kind of like integrates a very specific geography you know, that doesn't match up to many AIDS histories that are around. But I think what, what the Atlas can show quite clearly is the transformation from different forms in which AIDS was imagined 
and different embodiments of the epidemic as a way to tackle, to understand, to analyze, but also to treat and to intervene in the epidemic. And these shifting embodiments of the epidemic really became the center of the book and the center of my, my history that I tell through the book. And the atlas, I think, showed me, or studying these atlases and the series of atlases showed me these changing ways of problematizing the epidemic. But these changing ways, and we'll get to them, I think, in a, in a bit, but the, these changing ways are also ones that, that you can see very clearly in popular culture. You can see them very clearly in, in art that is reflecting on AIDS. You can see them in the way global health has tackled and understood AIDS and HIV. And they are, there is a huge, so, so in a way I used also or looked at the atlases as something that is in, in, is in a very constant state of communication with wider fields of knowledge and wider understandings of AIDS and HIV. And so to, to, to draw a bit back onto, onto STS scholarship, I think there's, there's a bit of um, a tendency to think of something like an, like an atlas that is produced in a field like a highly technoscientific uh, biomedical realm as something that aims to develop a clarified and a kind of um, sober discourse about AIDS and HIV or about its subject. And I think on the contrary, you can see through the atlases how messy uncertain and unusualness, how, how messy the field remains and how and, and to what and to what extent uncertainty and unusualness continue to prescribe the attempt to develop an ordered discourse about an epidemic that is distorting uh, or threatening society at large. Mm -hmm. Great. So I'm wondering if we can talk maybe for a second before we delve into the individual chapters about the overall structure, because some of what you've said about periodization sort of, you know, um, you know, pricked up my ears because there's a sense in which, you know, you could see this as, and this is, you know, what you're working against. There's a way in which it becomes this, you know, it begins as this uncertain thing captured through photographs. Maps give things the shape of an epidemic. And then the virus comes in and iconically shifts the narrative to be focused on individual pathogens. So in a way, though, what you're saying is that all of these forms of representation exist alongside one another. Other. So I'm wondering, like, so what led you to, you know, sequence and structure the book the way you did exactly? Mm, that 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 is that is a very good question, and I think it's it's one I grappled with the most. And um, so, yes, on the one hand, it 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 the book offers itself to. Or the way the book is structured, it offers itself to 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 suggest that there is a form of uh, seeing that is replaced by one another. So we begin with a representation of the body of the person with AIDS, then we delve into a representation of the spaces that are affected by the epidemic, by AIDS, to then move the focus onto the virus as the cause of AIDS and also as the as the ultimate point of intervention and treatment. Yeah? And I think that is a very, um, I think, almost intuitive 
uh, way of reiterating some of the larger stages of the epidemic. It appears in a certain social milieu, in a certain population, is deeply associated in the first decade with a very particular sexual identity and sexual practices. So it's deeply focused and built around representations of, of a very particular body, you know, the young male bodies. And then moves away from there to this realization in the end of the 80s that this is indeed a global epidemic that has different aspects or has very different shapes and different patterns in different parts of the globe cannot be understood as one that is that appears in the same way and on, on, on different bodies but is deeply clustered by difference that also challenged then again a lot of certainties that had been established at the time to then again be resolved into something that can be unified through through the 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 highly highly stylized visualizations of the of the virus what i stress throughout the book and what what i think is very important is that all of these three represent modes of representations or modes of seeing an epidemic or modes of seeing a disease or ways of seeing a disease there are different uh, ways to look at that all of these are already present in the first atlas in 1986 and all of these are used in the last atlas in 2008 and they're always there one of the most famous uh, um, times cover of hiv and aids of aids not of hiv at that time is of a very blurry electron micrograph i think in 1988 or 1989 so visualizations of the virus did not all of a sudden become the kind of replacement of maps who were there before in the 90s and then before that there was just photographs i think that that is that is an argument that i try to resist here you know while still maintain the question that or while still trying to maintain an argument to say that there is indeed a story that we can tell that we can look at and how these different framings or these different ways of seeing the body the space and the virus itself tell us different stories of how AIDS was problematized, how AIDS was referenced, how AIDS was experienced as a crisis, both as a personal crisis, as well as a social crisis, as well as a medical crisis, and how different strategies of problematization moved into foreground while others moved into the background. And I think it's this relationship between different strategies of problematizing and visualizing at the same time that allows us to, to have a much more dynamic idea of, period, of, of the historical transformation rather than periodization of AIDS. Mm -hmm. Great. That's a very good answer to uh, my, my difficult question. So uh, let's, let's, let's go into some of the content then. So in your first chapter on photography, um, and you've stressed this a little bit, you emphasize how images, rather than sort of having this, uh, you know, aura of representing the thing itself and having a necessary indexical referent uh, that points to some kind of objective reality function as a way you, you describe as kind of an epistemic thing in the sense of Hansjörg Grimberger and that they're sort of mm -hmm. a bounded site for productive uncertainty. So talk a little bit about uh, these images, uh, what an epistemic thing is as a representation, and how maybe you know, the sort of epistemic features that Reinberger talks about relates to analyses of visual culture that try to loosen the you know, necessary assumed connection between the object being photographed and the photograph itself. We do have another hour, yeah? 
<laughs> okay, I'll try that. Um, I'm. I, I think medical. I'm, I've, I recently had this conversation with with a colleague and, and friend that that like writing about photography is 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 painful. It's it's incredibly difficult to 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 develop a sense of what photographs actually do. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something that I find always very, very intriguing about medical medical photography, in particular. That I think it's on the one hand, it's a it's a genre that we very intuitively can relate to, or we assume it has a certain place and function within what we know about the history of medicine, the way the the body is visualized and problematized in medicine. But at the same time. I think it's a medium we almost know next to nothing about how it really worked and how it was used and how it was instrumental in 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 the understanding of particular diseases and conditions throughout time. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And there there are a couple of case studies who do this very nice and to look in some of these aspects. But but I think there's a lot more scholarship that could be done on the history of medical photography, especially throughout the 20th century. And um, my question for medical photography was very much informed or my my analysis of medical photography in in, in aids was deeply informed by the vast amount of literature that is there on on medical photographs of people with aids in public so there's Mm -hmm. jan sita grover douglas crimp has written about it simon watney here in the uk has written about it and a lot of other people have have tackled this issue of what is the problem with a medical representation of a person with aids and how can we how can we understand these medical representations of people with aids and what they do to communities what they do to the, our sense of what a community is what the sense of what sexual communities are but also how do we integrate this question via the photographs into this longer history of photography in 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 epidemic crisis as a way of showing who is at risk and who is not at risk. So photo- photography also as a way of boundary uh, making, you know, of, mm-hmm. of, of establishing a division between those at risk and those who are not at risk is something that, that Gilman kind of like wrote a lot about and mm-hmm. contributed a lot in, in, in terms of um, in the 80s in, in, in regards to AIDS in comparison to syphilis. Mm. But I was much more struck by the question of how is this genre that's so obviously so complicated and so vague in its in its in its um, offerings towards towards a, a, an ordered discourse about an epidemic or a disease how come that this genre is so incredibly uh, popular within the atlas within, mm-hmm. within the atlas of aids what is it actually that it is doing there and what is it doing there that language at that time could not do was I think a very productive questions to 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 look at photographs more closely, mm-hmm. and there, what became clear and first and foremost was that photographs are not doing exactly what we assume that they would that or what some would assume that they do, and that is to say like this is what AIDS is and this is what you need to know about AIDS, or. The other version would be that photographs kind of like create some kind of diagnostic tool. This is how you diagnose AIDS you know? mm-hmm. um, by recognizing the pattern on the skin or something. But mm. my argument in the book is that what photographs did at that time was to to create this conjuncture between a morphology that was well understood and well known in the medical community, Kaposi sarcoma, 
herpes soster, a lot of other conditions of the skin, but also uh, uh, pneumonia. Mm -hmm. um, all of these conditions appeared with AIDS in a highly unusual milieu. They were as if kind of like, as if they were to, to use this kind of traditional um, analogy to the plants or something. It's as if you take a, 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 um, a, a species of disease out of its usual habitat and place it into a very different habitat. And I think photographs were able to do this. They were able to create an apprehension or not an apprehension that they were able to create an acknowledgement of this entirely new habitat that was in which these conditions now emerged and that it was not the condition mm -hmm. itself that were important to recognize the arrival of a new epidemic, but it was the habitat that needed to be understood, the, the niche, the milieu that needed to be acknowledged and understood to recognize the new epidemic as what it was. And that is, of course, a mm -hmm. highly problematic mm -hmm. effort and a highly problematic undertaking because that population was at the same time one highly affected by discrimination and stigmatization. Right. So, and the effect of that, of to, to understand and to analyze the effect of these questions brought together through series upon series of photographs in the Atlas, I found Reinberger's work very, very useful to think of these photographs not so much as something that is placed in the atlas to develop a discourse of certainty about what AIDS is, what it looks like, and how it is supposed to be recognized through its visual patterns, but rather as an instrument that is used to establish a sense of the kind of uncertainty, the unusualness that is associated with the appearance of these conditions within a highly unusual and, un and never-before-seen um, milieu, and to, at the same time, sustain that this is the kind of object or research subject that needed to be framed in a way to move forward and to understand what this, was, what this epidemic was about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so in that way, then, this sort of framing, talking about a particular kind of milieu um, that's sort of native to photography in a way, and the way that photography is being used in the atlas specifically. But turning then to your second uh, representational medium, the map, the situation changes quite a lot because maps, as we know, are kind of the you know consummate instrument of bureaucratic simplification uh, and yes. control. So what I'm wondering actually is specifically in your chapter on mapping, um, what is the what is the relationship as you see it between uh, the sort of longer legacy of colonial mapping and colonial disease mapping mm. and the particular shape that um, AIDS in Africa begins to take in the late 90s? Because you draw attention to the fact that, you know, this is a period at which the sort of divergent trajectories of AIDS become really, really apparent. It's something that, you know, biomedicalization in the West uh, is able to bring under more control, perhaps not obviously total control and eradication, um, while it takes on a very different shape elsewhere. So what's the legacy of like the continuity um, between colonial mapping practices and how people begin to look at AIDS differently in Africa? The construction of difference is, I think, the most important legacy that you 
that you incorporate here, but it's a difference that is very particular. There is, um, I think, that the, the, the popular phrasing that emerged at the time as well was was the, the reference to some kind of African AIDS. And I got very interested. Mm-hmm. Christina Bastos, she she wrote a fantastic book about the uh, um, global response to AIDS. I think it's called, in which she um, kind of demonstrates that with the globalization of AIDS, we also had the development of the the idea that AIDS in different spaces within the global um, arena is a very different condition and a very different disease. And I was very curious about the development of that and the involvement of maps in that. And the one tradition that I then traced back to colonial mapping and to colonial disease mapping is the the idea that is that is has been around at least since the since the early 19th century but probably longer and that's the idea of the disease district so considering a disease not so much about a population or not 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 so much through the kind of body that is involved in transmitting it or that is involved in getting it or that is involved in in imposing a risk or being at risk to it but rather associating a disease through its through its geographical or spatial distribution patterns as a very specific discourse that emerged in colonial practices in the or in in, in colonial uh, medicine in the in the 19th centuries and then was translated and and uh, um, continued in in tropical medicine for for quite a while and there are of course lots of diseases that are offer itself quite neatly to that discourse diseases caused by 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 certain vectors that are entirely dependent of on ecological denominators but aids for aids to appear within this framework i think was once again something that didn't hasn't received as much attention as it should have been and i was quite struck that that creating the maps of visualizing aids and how it covers the african continent how it is deeply entangled with a number of ecological aspects of the african continent how this is then also tied to a picture of a deep history of AIDS, its emergence and its origination, you know, its origin of origin almost in, in Africa, um, as something that is that is that is almost um that is that is causing a kind of kind of I'm missing a word here, but mm-hmm. kind of like hyperdrive of, <laughs> you know, of of stereotypes right, being right. folded onto each other to create this 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 very well understood and very well-known stereotype of the African body as one that is more prone to disease than the Western body of the African body that is of one that is more prone to infection and contagion due to its association with some kind of imagined natural habitat. Mm-hmm. You know? It's this kind of Cold War discourse things... of the timeline, right? Of saying that, you know, certain, certain societies have, you know, different um, you know, susceptibility to diseases, right? Because they are at exactly. a different stage along a, you know, some kind of universal timeline of social development. So it's sort of exoticized other in that sense, right? Of time too. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But also I think essential is, is that it's, it's exoticized, but also at the same time developed to a notion of origin, to a notion of a historical origination that also explains to us the essence of the disease at hand you know, even though it has transcended and transgressed the kind of original geographical order by by symbolically and 
imaginatively returning into that order, you create, of course, yet another sense of security or yet another sense of immunity of the West to this disease. Mm -hmm. And Didier Fassin wrote quite nicely, I think, about the, the, the um, anesthesia that, that goes along with this kind of, 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 um, of disavowment towards the suffering. Mm -hmm. And that is then very nicely, I think, or not nicely, of course, not nicely, but it's very, very strongly associated with the, with the iconogra iconography of maps, which other than photographs do not make any reference to the body anymore. There mm -hmm. is no direct reference to the suffering body. There is no direct reference to the individual. It's just point maps, yeah, that is clusters yeah. of cases, patterns in time and space. Great, great. Thank you. And so for my, my last big question is about the sort of the status of the icon. And in asking you this, I want to actually get you to talk both about um, the work on the representation of the virus itself, but also the use of political imagery and the way that activist groups sort of have mobilized um, around AIDS and how you address that in your epilogue. So roughly speaking, you know, how would you define, you know, the role of the icon? Right, and how do people how do people use that differently? Because um, there's a nice ambivalence you trace, uh, I think, that runs like through the center of the book, the center of AIDS histories, and that you know there's a way in which you know flattening something into a microbe definitely elides all of the important localities of disease and whatnot. But there's also a way in which that icon allows activist groups to make different kinds of claims on the powers that be to provide treatment and to also destigmatize. So how do you treat like the role of the icon, the status of the virus uh, regarding this? And what importance do activist groups have in the overall narrative uh, that you're telling here about uh, visual representations and AIDS? Let's start with the icon first and then get to the activist group afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the icon is really a really fascinating object because it's so pervasive and really i i became interested in the in the virus mostly based on the this idea on on this observation that i did not i don't flesh this out really in the book but it's an observation that i i i, I still maintain is that that almost every publication on any kind of breakthrough on any kind of larger update on hiv aids in any of the big newspapers of today uh, um, is almost always as visualized or illustrated with with a with a picture of the virus. It is and it, it has this kind of pervasiveness based on the idea that it is on the one hand it's the most neutral representative visual representation of of the epidemic that you could find. It also is a representation that signals so much more than 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 a picture of a body with AIDS or a picture of activism or a picture of 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 a map could do because it also shows some kind of has all the indi all these indices of of control of having uncovered what is inside this epidemic what is driving the epidemics the the kind of like essence that stays is behind everything that we know about this epidemic and at the same time it's entirely empty in its in its in its meanings so it can be claimed for almost any cause and almost any 
substantive engagement with the epidemic. This is an icon that can be used as much by a bioscientist trying to publish some, some kind of progress in vaccine research, but at the same time, it also works really well on safer sex adver advertisement. Yeah? And it's this, this pervasiveness that kind of like seemingly or apparently seems to join all, all what historically used to be much more dichotomous and much more antagonistic, all of them seem to agree that this is now the focus of attention. This is how we should see and how we should engage with AIDS and HIV. And it's, I think, most clearly, uh, um, perhaps, uh, most clearly represented through the fact that, that, that the whole discourse has moved on from AIDS to HIV, which has a lot to do with the way with the, 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 the disease has been brought under control and the infection has been un brought under control. But speaking to clinicians here in the UK, for example, even if you have cases that develop into what used to be classified as AIDS, there is a strong recommendation among clinicians today to not name it as AIDS, but speak of HIV disease. Because AIDS is supposed to be history and we're now speaking about HIV as something that is under control and that we can tackle through a number of different strategies that almost most importantly should not be associated with what AIDS used to be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that I think is something that is organized and facilitated through this iconography of the virus. And that's a point that I make in that, in that chapter on HIV. Yeah. And there's also a way in which, you know, if you think about the one of the canonical, you know, images of AIDS representation, right, or, you know, the, the body suffering from AIDS, there's this kind of, you know, before and after mentality, right? So you think about, you know, the image of like Rock Hudson, right, which is what galvanizes the Reagan administration to actually say something, right? So there's something about the before and after that's doing the work early on. Yeah. And then this shift toward, you know, the pathogen itself represents a kind of different orientation as you've just unpacked, right? To this kind of preventative risk management sort of perspective. Exactly. But it also, in a way, it contains it contains more than the maps. It does more work than the maps do. Um, so maybe I'm wondering a little bit more, so the, the activist groups, how so, you know, obviously claims on individuals, suffering bodies, people, you know, um, having you know, their own kind of, uh, not like broadcasting their own tombstone, but, you know, sufferers of AIDS mm. participating in protests, sort of using the, you know, fragility of their own state as their political statement. How, how do activist groups come to embrace this icon of the virus? And how does that sort of change uh, the discourse? How does that sort of change uh, your story ultimately? There's there's a, a beautiful paper by 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 um, Treichler. Um, I'm blanking on the title of that paper right now, but where she describes her her encounter with the with the huge statue of um, HIV of the virus in front of the entrance of the I think the Montreal AIDS conference in the early 90s, mm -hmm. and not coincidentally that is the conference where also ACT UP has quite a huge or made quite a huge splash with Peter Staley yeah. uh, calling calling everyone an AIDS activist who is part of this conference and everybody kind of like joins into an empathic gesture of of um, identity in the fight against AIDS. Mm -hmm. And I think Treichler puts the finger on that very nicely in that in, in her essay that that this is precisely a moment in which 
in which different sides, different parts of the, by then already 12, 13, 15, uh, then a good decade old history of AIDS come together to agree on a common agenda of sorts, bringing mm -hmm. the virus under control and agreeing on almost a kind of like distribution of labor of how this virus is supposed to be brought under control. And this, of course, as we know from, from, from um, other works on the history of AIDS, uh, causes quite a bit of ruptures in, on the activist side. It causes a bit of controversy yeah. on, the, on the science side. But it's definitely a point in time in which alliances shift and the form, formation of politics and the formation of power shifts around how to bring AIDS under control. This is, of course, where treatment activism becomes more and more important, where, the in, where, where activism also splits into the, um, in the, 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 the treatment action group in, in New York, yeah, which at some point then mm -hmm. leaves ACT UP and begins uh, or follows its own agenda. David France has, has written that story out quite in detail in his book on, the, on how to survive a plague. But it is, of course, a time mm -hmm. in which also AIDS is many, of many who were witnessing the epidemic at that time would describe this as a, as a time of depression and fatigue. Yeah? It is a time also mm -hmm. where much of the enthusiasm, both on the activist side as well as in biomedical research laboratories, gets almost to a halt because nothing really works yeah? and nothing really yeah brings in the promise that everyone hopes for and it takes until 1995 1996 for for the protease inhibitors to work you know, mm -hmm. and to be proven to work and so in that time for the virus to become to become something that is agreed upon as as a as a shared iconography i think the virus is both a symbol of coalescing around a, a, a target and agreeing on a research agenda that is that has a vast social and political support on the one hand so it's a it's an indication and an icon of a futurism of sorts in the in in that time and becomes that kind of future hope associated with that future hope. but at the same time it's also an icon in which an enormous amount of AIDS history is made invisible it is it is an icon that allows if you want to move beyond representations of the body and representations of spaces it it removes with those bodies and spaces also a lot of political questions and a lot of social and emotional questions from the focus and i think that is a very interesting and intriguing aspect of the virus that it, at the same time as it allows for for a neutral less problematic discourse to agree upon what's the problem here it also enables um, a forgetting, if you want, a forgetting of the pain, a forgetting of the failure, and a forgetting of the neglect that was associated historically with AIDS. Yeah, great, thank you. Um, so just to wrap things up, uh, Lucas, I was wondering, we like to conclude things by having our authors talk about what their next project is looking like. So we'd love <laughs> okay. you to unpack that. Mm, so I've since since the book I've been I've been working on uh, on a postdoc project on an entirely different epidemic. It was the, the bubonic plague in the 20th century, but that also has come to an end. Um, what I'm working now on is 
epidemiology and the larger uh, or the history of epidemiology in the 20th century. And mm -hmm. there are a couple of moving parts at the moment, but I'm very interested, as I am in an STS department, I'm very interested in the in what's currently going on in, in terms of digital innovation of epidemiology. There is, is a lot of interruption or a lot of disruption that is currently going on in that field, but mm -hmm. as often associated with disruptions, if not always, it brings out a lot of interesting questions about what is posited as the historical picture. What is placed there as something that needs to be disrupted? What is the problem with old epidemiology? And that is a question that I kind of like follow along and try to develop a better sense of how epidemiology developed over the 20th century as a field um, of abstraction, perhaps as medicine's first data science in the 1920s and 30s. Mm -hmm. And then how we get from there, from these early attempts of formalizing and standardizing quanti quantifiable approaches to epidemics, how we get from there then to the 1970s and later in 1980s, where epidemic epidemiology is becoming highly computerized, especially in its approach to AIDS and HIV in the 80s, and how that created a kind of foundation for um, epidemiological understandings of epidemics, but also to what extent we can think about the technologies and ways of reasoning that have been developed in that history as a kind of epidemiological reasoning that also has found a lot of application beyond traditional infectious disease analysis. Mm -hmm. Great. That's what I'm currently developing. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks so much, Lucas. This has been a really fascinating interview. Thank you very much. It was really nice. Thanks so much for listening. This has been New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast on the New Books Network.